This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hi, everybody, and welcome again to Recovery Radio. I'm your host, Steve Martoreno. We hope you're joining us each and every episode as we speak with lots of experts in the very broad field of behavioral health. The uh, the mission of the program is to foster diverse and meaningful conversations on uh, a wide range of mental health issues uh, and, of course, uh, substance abuse as well. So uh, we've got a good one for you today. I hope you will uh, stick around for this. Our guest is... Uh, uh, Kenneth Paul Rosenberg. Mr. Rosenberg is one of those hyphenated people that I'm always so incredibly uh, uh, envious of. First and foremost, uh, he is a physician. He's a psychiatrist. Dr. Rosenberg has a specialty in that field in addiction medicine. He's also an award-winning filmmaker, having won a bunch of awards for some great stuff done for both HBO and for uh, the uh, PBS uh, channel. And he's a speaker and an author, I guess it's with that final hat that he joins us today uh, as an author with the publication of his most recent book, which is entitled Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis. Dr. Rosenberg, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. Pleasure to be here. I couldn't possibly have left out any of your other uh, specialties, right? You've no, you got you, you got them all. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. <laughs> um, so let's begin with the with with the you know the kind of bold statement you make here. In fact, it's what it's what your new book, as I understand it, is predicated on, and that's your belief that in terms of social crises, uh, in your opinion, the mental health situation is our number one. Um, social crisis. Uh, that's a that's a pretty bold statement, given the kinds of problems we know we're facing uh, environmentally right. and with violence and uh, and certainly substance abuse. Um, so tell us how you arrive at that kind of sweeping statement. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is correct. Uh, if it's not the number one, it's the number two or number three. But it's right up there, and it's the neglected social crisis. It's the social crisis. We walk by every time we, you pass a person who's homeless on the street, and often there's a better than 25, maybe 50% chance that they have a serious mental illness. There's probably a better than 80% chance they have a substance abuse problem, and we kind of ignore it. We also ignore it in our own families. Uh, my own family was an example. Unfortunately, my dear and beloved sister had schizophrenia, died from it at the age of 55. But um, my parents grew up in a generation in which denial reigned supreme, and they really felt stigmatized by my sister's mental illness, and they didn't share it. Any other problems they would address, they were as loving and kind parents as you could really possibly hope for, but when it came to this area of mental illness, they denied it. Um, and also, my mentor in this project, Dr. Fuller Torrey, who's founder and director of the Treatment Advocacy Center, uh, really has shined a light on this, and I am following his lead on this, that it is the greatest social crisis of the last century, and I think this century as well. Uh, the jails now are de facto asylums. We don't put people in mental institutions so much anymore. You have a 10 times greater chance of being in a jail than you do of being in a hospital if you have a serious mental illness. The streets are now our community mental health centers. We, you know, let people out on the street, and uh, Philadelphia is no exception, but where I filmed and, and did my documentation for my book in Los Angeles, you really see that 
big time in Skid Row. And the ERs are the front lines uh, because they have replaced the hospital to deal with the onslaught of people who have these crises. And what's more, research for serious mental illness has lagged far behind research for other medical diseases. And you know that because, you know, your, your listeners are familiar with issues of behavioral health and substance abuse. And when it comes to the brain, it's very complex. And you can't compare the brain to a kidney or a pancreas. But you can compare the amount of money we've devoted to medical research. And when it comes to cancer, when it comes to HIV, when it comes to cardiac disease, the amount per capita of what we require, given the enormity of the problem of serious mental illness, the number that we devote in terms of federal funding to serious mental illness lags far behind, I would say, pales in comparison. So for all those reasons and more, yes, I think it's our greatest social crisis. Yeah, I wanna... Not to take anything away from mm-hmm. the criminalization that happens and, and uh, racism that happens and environmental issues. But this is one that we don't talk about. And so the purpose of the book, the purpose of the film that will be out on Independent Lens in April, is to let people know this is something that we need to have a conversation about. Well, it occurs to me that one of the reasons we we, we need to take a, a very much closer look at the, our attitudes towards the mental illness and what's being done and not being done is that on some level, and correct me if you, if you think I'm crazy here, but it, it may be at the root cause of a lot of other problems. That we that we treat as symptoms of what in fact might be mental illness is that is that I think that's I think that's fair. There's a number of problems. Uh, yeah, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. Uh, I don't specialize in schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. I specialize in addiction, and I think that recently we have paid attention to that. But you know, uh, again, as you know, and your listeners know from listening to your show, people really underestimate the importance of substance abuse and the importance of serious mental illness, they, you know, will much more readily consider they have a medical problem, a social problem, a lack of willpower problem. They really don't want to consider that they have a disease that's a psychiatric problem. Uh, let's let's define some terms here now. Um, I, uh, during the course of anybody's day, you're, you're going to run into more than one person that probably has some sort of mental if not illness disturbance. So how do we define a mental illness? Well, there is any mental illness, which is anything that psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers might diagnose as a mental illness. That could be as, uh, as benign, if you will, as an adjustment disorder. Bear in mind, if you're the person with it, it's not benign at all. But it could be as benign as an adjustment disorder in which you feel anxious or depressed because you have some problem in life and uh, and you get over it. You might get over over quicker if you seek professional help. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's something like schizophrenia, in which in your late teens, early 20s, you begin to hear voices, maybe even see things. Uh, you have delusions, illusions. Uh, you might even sense you're uh, pretty persecuted, you might have a sense of paranoia. And within time, within a matter of years, you become dysfunctional. Well, when you reach the, reach the point of being dysfunctional and you have these serious symptoms, suicidal depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, the disorder that used to be called manic depression, which was, of course, a very good descriptor, but is now replaced by bipolar disorder as a diagnosis category. If you have these illnesses and you're among the 
two or three uh, percent of the population has these illnesses, you, you, you basically can't live life. I mean, you are unable to work often unless you get treatment. You're unable to have, uh, you know, good relationships. Your whole family suffers as a consequence. And that's what I would consider a serious mental illness, to be distinguished from having any mental illness. You know, 50% of us, as a conservative estimate, 50% of us need some kind of psychiatric care at some point in our lives. But 1% or 2% of us are, you know, really in, in bad shape and really desperately need this kind of level of support and help to get by. Th- those extreme cases, and I, I, schizophrenia comes immediately to mind, of course, uh, even for the lay person. How, how much do we really know about the causes of something like schizophrenia? Well, we don't. That's part of the problem. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to devise new and novel treatments for something that we really don't have an understanding of the cause for. But we, it's fair to say that while poverty makes it worse, trauma makes it worse, substance abuse makes it worse. Substance abuse may open up, in fact, a window on serious mental illness that might otherwise be closed. Well, those are all factors. It's probably largely a biological, at least, predisposition. You know, if you have a twin who has something like schizophrenia, you only have a 50% chance of of getting the illness, but largely to get the illness, you probably need that biological predisposition to get it. So we don't know what's going on in the brain exactly. We have some interesting clues. There are some wonderful theories we could talk about later. Mm -hmm. But by and large, we don't know the cause of serious mental illness, Um, but we do have some reasonable treatments for it. And we do know what makes it worse. That's for sure. Yeah. What you know? What's fascinating by the uh, about to my mind about the uh, this sort of uh, neglect when it comes to uh, examining mental illness and trying to figure out what to do about it is that interventions in most other diseases, when you think about it, at the end of the day, are about prolonging life. You're diagnosed with cancer, and they tell you we've got to treat this now so you can live another five years or ten years. Um, you know, that's one way of approaching a problem of an illness like cancer. Mental illness doesn't really seek, the treatment of mental illness doesn't really seek to to extend anybody's life. Rather, it's about making the life they have right now livable. Is that is that a, a fair distinction to make? Uh, yeah, it's a great point. I'm not 100% sure, frankly, because... You know, it, it, it's very complicated. In in my book, Bedlam, uh, and also in our film, Bedlam, that will be on in April of 2020 mm-hmm. on PBS, we do really emphasize the importance of early intervention because just like you want to intervene early in cancer to prolong life, you really want to intervene early in serious mental illness to improve the quality of life and maybe even to prevent an early death. You know, people who have serious mental illness die up to 30 years uh, less, sooner, 30 years sooner than people without a serious mental illness. So it really is a risk to your physical and mental, of course, well-being. Um, You know, so I think it's very complicated what we're trying to treat and how we're trying to treat. But suffice to say, Early intervention is really, really important and can prolong your life right. and maybe even can prevent you from getting the fulminant, uh, uh, you know, terrible uh, out- outcome of the disease. Our guest on the telephone is uh, Dr. Kenneth Paul Rosenberg, psychiatrist, filmmaker, and author of the book Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis. When we come back from the break, 
Dr. Rosenberg will, I think, give us a little more details of the intimacy of the, of the journey. He talks about how it affected his family, which he alluded to just a moment ago. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. On the telephone with us is Dr. Kenneth Paul Rosenberg, psychiatrist and author. He's a filmmaker. Incidentally, uh, the film, based upon his current book, Bedlam, is going to be on Independent Lens. It's a great PBS television program. Watch it all the time. Bedlam will uh, be broadcast on April 13th of 2020, if you want to take a look at that. The book is entitled Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis, that Dr. Rosenberg is uh, is pointing out as a, a major, if not the number one social problem facing us. Uh, you call the book An Intimate Journey because of your family's relationship with this disease, your sister uh, who had schizophrenia. You, you, you mentioned uh, briefly in, in uh, the first segment there that she she died of schizophrenia in what way do you mean that and people don't think of schizophrenia as killing people right well serious mental illness is a major cause of disability and morbidity in the world in fact the world health organization predicts that soon serious mental illness or mental illness in general i should say the cost burden, which is how they assess the disability, mortality, morbidity of a, a disease, the cost burden of, of mental illness will exceed that of cancer, cardiac disease, and all non-communicable diseases combined. Serious mental illness is without a doubt deadly. We talked about in the last segment, people with serious mental illness live on average 30 years less than the rest of the population. That's a shocking thing. Uh, this was no exception. Unfortunately, she died uh, at the age of 55. The coroner uh, report was that she had a heart attack. That's, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I'm a doctor. I know, that, you know, when they can't write anything else, you write a, a, a heart attack. Uh, the secondary cause might have been an untreated breast cancer lesion because she refused to see a doctor. But in my book... Literally in my book, and certainly in my view, my beloved sister died from serious mental illness. It's kind of stubbornness, it's neglect, it's refusal to uh, get treatment. I mean, she was so consumed by her illness that my wonderful sister refused to go to a doctor. Mm-hmm. And had she gone to a doctor, whatever it is that killed her might have been prevented. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk so about... She died from serious mental illness, as do many, many people do. Look, if 25% of the homeless population are there because of serious mental illness, do you think that they could live long, fruitful lives on the streets, especially now as it's getting colder in November and December? No. It's, uh, it, it's, these are deadly diseases. And people turn to substance abuse, which is also deadly. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's suicide. So for a multitude of reasons, serious mental illness is a killer. In fact, I would say, and we know for a fact, it's you know right up there as the number one, number two, number three killer, depending on, on who you believe and what numbers you look at. Mm-hmm. Well, t- tell us about your sister's uh, progress through this disease. When was she first diagnosed with problems? Well, when I was 14 and she was 20, the age when serious mental illness comes on and erupts, she became psychotic, and that's when her disease developed. She had some issues before anxiety, depression. They were not treated. Uh, she had some magical thinking, which is often a prodrome to serious mental illness. And then it unfortunately er- erupted when she was 20, and uh, she needed to be hospitalized uh, over and over again. And, you know, we talk about the stigma of the disease, but partly what 
motivates the stigma, or I would say fuels the stigma of serious mental illness, is our lack of real great options for these folks. You know, the medicines we use are 70 years old. The psychiatric hospitals, you know, Lord knows we need more of them. We have 2 or 3% of the beds that we need. We'll talk about that later. But the psychiatric beds, uh, psychiatric hospitals, emergency rooms, are not great places to be. They're not very welcoming. You know, forced treatment doesn't really make you uh, want to come back to the hospital. If they tie you down or inject you with, you know, sedating drugs, that doesn't make you want to say to yourself, boy, I can't wait to come back to that place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the treatment was not that hospitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, she shunned treatment for the rest of her life. Yeah. As you know, it's also part of the disease. It's called anosognosia. It means that you don't know that you're ill. Well, so for many reasons, she did not get the care she needs, and that was kind of the course of her life. What's the term you use for not knowing that you're ill? Anosognosia. Yeah. It means that you don't know mm-hmm. that you have yes. an illness. And it is uh, the most... Literally what it means in Latin. Yeah, it is... It a, is. I, you know, don't... Uh, no signosia, that you know that you have a nosological or, mm-hmm. or you know, phenomenological or medical illness. It is, I think, uh, in my mind anyway, the most um, tragic consequence of mental illness. If you get any other disease, one of the, the principal tool you use is your ability to reason clearly. Okay, I've got this. I should do this to get myself better. When, when, when your mind is betraying you, you're, you're really at sea. Is that part Dave, of what... you make a really great point. I mean, you are struggling to regain your sanity when you're losing your mind. So you're really at an extreme disadvantage. Now, of course, it's, not true. it's true of other diseases that affect the brain. Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. is, you know, another example. People often don't know that they have dementia. They know it early on when they experience memory loss, which is extremely frightening, of course. But once you're in the throes of dementia, advanced dementia, just like advanced serious mental illness, you don't know that you know there's something wrong with you. So that's true of many brain diseases that are functioning your ability to know what you need to fight. The uh, you know we talk about substance abuse um, specifically as a family disease. I think all mm-hmm. diseases are at some on some level yes. a family disease. But I, I, I'm suspecting it's severe mental problems as your sister had can have a devastating effect on the family. Oh, yes, yes. It really affects everyone. I I think every disease is a Mm -hmm. family disease, but mental illness probably more so. And also because of what we just spoke about, the anosognosia, that people don't know that they're sick, because you have to often fight with the person to get treatment. And unfortunately, because of the the failures of our system, the burden for getting treatment falls on whom? It falls on the family falls on the parents. In fact, you know, years ago in the 1950s, we actually used to blame the parents. We had this term for mothers of people with schizophrenia. Oh my God, so it was so terrible. We used to call the mothers schizophrenogenic, meaning they caused the schizophrenia. Can you imagine that? You're watching your child develop a serious mm-hmm. mental illness, and the doctors are saying it's your fault. Sure. I mean, every parent, if you have any kids, you know, you know that if anything happens to your kids, you blame yourself. Uh, but when the doctors do it, God, how awful Devastating. that is. Devastating. Dr. Kenneth Paul Rosenberg, our guest, the book is entitled Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis. We have more with him on Recovery Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Our guest on the telephone, Dr. Kenneth Paul Rosenberg. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg is a psychiatrist, among many other uh, skills. 
Uh, he is also a filmmaker and an author. That's why he's here with us today, as a matter of fact. We we're talking about his book, Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis. But by the way, also the subject of an uh, independent lens documentary that will air on the 13th of 2020 on PBS. Uh, you know, uh, doc, uh, Dr. Rosenberg, Bedlam is, of course, um, the notorious London hospital of a couple of hundred years ago. That is right. Uh, m- 1247, it was established in, in Bethle- Bethlehem, England. Yes. St. Short nicknamed to Bedlam. And we, it's, it's where we use the word that way, except for the uh, yeah. obviously uh, medieval uh, excesses of the place. Um, I know you make the point very strongly in the book, Bedlam, that, you know, on one hand, we have just switched institutions. They, they may be far, yeah. far less horrific than, than we remember Bedlam being, but we have just switched from the asylum to, to the prison cell. Is that, is that pretty much the way you see it? I think it's best to say that we have not deinstitutionalized people by showing the asylums. We've transinstitutionalized them. We've traded institutions. We've gone from the dreadful asylums of the 1950s and 60s, certainly no place that you want to be, and deservedly need to be at least renovated, if not torn down. We've gone from those asylums to the jails and the streets. So we haven't deinstitutionalized them. We've transinstitutionalized them, just put them in worse and more dreadful places. And I think you're, what you say is absolutely correct, Steve. That, that you know, Bedlam is, is, I think, the best word, and that's why I called my book, my Penguin Random House book, and my PBS film, Bedlam, because I thought that that word, uh, you know, means so much and really captures the current situation. Never mind that it is the first, mental institution, or at least the world's oldest institution, a mental institution built in Bethlehem, England in 1247. Uh, I think Bethlehem is really the battle cry for what we are now existing with in terms of our mental health crisis. You know, it is a unique feature, maybe not unique, but certainly um, uh, obvious in our culture, in the, in, in the American culture, that when we see a problem, we very often um, uh, uh, attack it uh, as you're supposed to but it's usually in some kind of war footing a war on drugs uh we try to lock our lock our way out it lock people up as a solution to this problem so talk a little bit about you know what what kind of mental health treatment do people who who are locked up get i mean we we have people who unfortunately commit crimes and they're going to have to go to prison when they get there what happens well, a lot of people with serious mental illness commit petty crimes. A few commit major, terrible felony crimes, but that's the that's a, a small, small percent, maybe even a fraction of a percent of the people with serious mental illness. But they commit petty crimes. They don't know what the heck they're doing. They don't show up for court, and before you know it, there's a long laundry list of problems, and they are not only in jail, where you stay until you wait trial, but they're in prison and serving you know, fairly long sentences. Now, in the jails and prisons, actually the truth is people get fairly decent treatment. But, uh, and law enforcement will be the first to say this, the jails and the prisons are not mental health hospitals. The people in law enforcement, dedicated and devoted, and I really mean it, they are dedicated, they are devoted. You know, the, the 
kindest, smartest people I've met have gone into law enforcement. But they didn't go into law enforcement to become social workers or psychiatrists. So folks are in the wrong place, and they're not getting the treatment they need. Uh, because also in jail, no fault of the sheriffs or the deputies or the police, when people are in jail, it's not a conducive environment to getting mentally well. Not to mention, they don't follow the rules, they don't behave, they end up in solitary, they end up in all kinds of worse situations. And actually, there's been a movement to create jails just for people with serious mental illness, which is kind of a good thing, but if, I don't, if you don't mind me saying it, kind of a sick thing. I mean, when we now are saying that the jail should be built to take care of our mental health problem, I mean, will we do that for cancer? Will we say, now we're going to create jails for people with cancer? No. Uh, you know, it's much more complicated with mental illness than it is with cancer and infectious disease. Well, that is, what, what, you know, that, that is a given. But people really need, and I would say deserve, better treatment than we're offering them by making it 10 times more likely you're going to be in a jail than a hospital if you have a serious mental illness. Yeah, let, let me push back just a little on this notion that we don't lock people up for diabetes or cancer. Why mental illness? Uh, you, you you don't deny that there are people who, if they're, if they're not an immediate threat to, the, to others, they certainly are a threat to themselves and need to be in some kind of involuntary facility in order to get any kind of treatment at all, correct? With you, 100%. So, so, I don't deny that. Yeah, so I'm just trying to, for people going, oh, he's trying to minimize how dangerous or to themselves or others these people can be. You're not doing that at all. Well... It is a very complicated question. When we talk about danger, people with serious mental illness, by and large, are not dangerous. They are more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators. You know, when someone takes a gun and shoots, God forbid, shoots up lots of people, if they have a mental illness, then we say it's a mental, mental illness problem. Personally, I think it's a gun problem, if you ask me. And I think we have a, we, we conflate things. But people who have serious mental illness, uh, uh, don't often know what they're doing, and they end up doing some, you know, bad things, and they end up doing annoying things, uh, and they end up doing things that make us feel threatened and in danger. That's true. And we need ways to treat people sometimes, unfortunately, and I emphasize unfortunately, for some people we need to treat them against their will. But I don't think the jails or the prisons are the proper venue to treat anyone with any disease. Mm -hmm. Let's let me focus on that issue of of, of violence. So, so, as a psychiatrist, you would say that it is not automatically true that someone who uh, shoots up uh, a school or a, a movie theater or a church and kills a lot of people is automatically suffering from a mental illness. No, no I think that I think, uh, uh, with all due respect, I think that's the wrong question. The question is. Why are people with mental illness or without mental illness shooting up people? And the question is, is it because they have untreated mental illness? Well, yes, there's truth in that. Or is it because there are so many guns available? I would side with that. And I'll tell you why. In other countries in which there are similar numbers of people with serious mental illness, they don't have the killings we have because they don't have the automatic weapons readily available that we have. So the, the violence in the streets is not simply, it is part and small part uh, uh, an issue of untreated mental illness. But if you treated everyone with mental illness, you would stop about 
three or four percent of the murders. Now, that's a lot, if you, especially if you're the person who and the family who's affected. But it's not necessarily the major problem. You know, it, it's uh, one of the ironies of the great divide on this issue of guns and uh, and violence. That one part of the one part of the uh, um, argument has now tr- tried to shift the focus away from the gun situation and say what we have is a is a mental health issue. So, so there's a positive aspect of that because it's focused attention on mental illness, but but it's probably in the long run a negative connotation, right? I would agree that we've actually stigmatized people when when we conflate the issues of gun violence and mental illness. No question about it. People with serious mental illness need help and sometimes need involuntary help. And no question about it, people with untreated mental illness who have access to a gun or a weapon are a danger to themselves and society. But the problem, again, in my opinion, is not the mental illness, it's the gun. Okay. Uh, let, let me ask you this because I'm, I'm sure you, in, your, in your field you, you know about this, but may, maybe others do not. And I covered this story, so so I know it. Pretty well. Uh, Forty years ago or more at this point, God, I'm so old. Um, th- there was a very uh, famous and uh, well-publicized push towards something called mental health rights, which sprung out of uh, a book called The Myth of Mental Illness. Um, the, the the sense, I guess, being in those days that we we were we were making uh, a, a disease out of just you know. Um, you know, abnormal behavior where you, people didn't fit in. Let, let's be real clear. There's no myth about mental illness, correct? No, there's no mental illness. is not a myth. You know, I, I admire Thomas Zaz, who wrote that book in the 1960s. It was a brilliant book. And I admire the anti-psychiatry movement for making us accountable. That's a good thing. Dialogue is a very important thing. But their mental illness, serious mental illness in particular, is not a myth. It's a it's a brain disease that needs to be treated. Well, we, you touched on this earlier, but I want to want to make the point here now. With regard to people who unfortunately do need to be uh, treated against their their will, or they just don't have the capacity to make an informed judgment about this, do do we have the right laws in place um, for that? And in general, do we have the right laws that deal with mental illness? I would say not. I think we've, we, you know, the, we live in a democracy and we value personal autonomy and we want, and we value civil liberties, thank God. And we want to err on the side of civil liberties and personal autonomy. We don't want to tell someone what treatment they need, what medication they need, unless it's absolutely, absolutely necessary. But I think that we've erred now too far on the side of personal autonomy and civil liberties. When it comes to people with serious mental illness, you know, we in, in my book, Bedlam, we talk about a mother who lost a child. And she said to me the most brilliant thing I've ever heard, which is, and the most tragic thing perhaps I've ever heard, which is my son died from his mental illness with his civil liberties intact, mm. meaning we couldn't force him into a hospital, we couldn't force him into treatment, and he had his civil liberties. And this is a woman who's a brilliant lawyer, by the way. She said he had his civil liberties, but what he didn't have is necessary treatment for his serious mental illness, which he was denying or at least unaware of. Yeah, died young with his with his uh, civil rights intact. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Paul Rosenberg, our guest, his book is entitled Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis. We have uh, more with Dr. Rosenberg straight ahead. This is Recovery Radio. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to Recovery Radio. It, it's been a, a real eye-opener to have our guest with us uh, today to talk about his new book, Dr. Kenneth Paul Rosenberg, psychiatrist, filmmaker, and author of the new book called Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis, the subject of which will uh, will be broadcast on PBS April 13th of 2020 on Independent Lens. Look for it. It's called Bedlam. And uh, the book's published by, I don't have it in front of me. Books published by Avery and Penguin Random House. Uh, there you go. Oh, uh, so let's uh, sort of circle around back to this. I think you make an obviously compelling and strong case that this is, a, if not the number one crisis facing this country, it's right up there. So with any crisis, sure. we, 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 we sort of need a, an action plan. Where should we as a society begin looking for solutions? Great question, Steve. I think the first thing we should be doing is having a conversation, which is precisely what we're doing this moment on your radio show. We need to have a national conversation. We, those of us who live with serious mental illness, those of us who treat serious mental illness, those of us who know about the problems firsthand, need to come out of the closet and talk about it. That is the first thing. Trite as it sounds, a conversation will change things because it can't change something if you don't talk about it. So we need to talk about it. Once we talk about it, we have a national policy that addresses the, the needs. We have 2 to 3% of the psychiatric beds we need. We have very few community resources out there given the great needs. Medical research is really abysmally low, not because we, we lack great researchers, but because we lack funding. Big Pharma has all but pulled out of creating new psychiatric drugs because it's expensive and because they don't have the research to invest a billion or two dollars into finding a new drug. I don't blame Big Pharma. They're responsible to their shareholders, but I blame us as a society. We're responsible to take care of our neediest citizens. And we also need laws which ensure parity, the ability to take care of people with mental illness in the same way that we take care of people with medical illness. And we need laws, as we talked about earlier in the last segment, to help people uh, uh, get the assisted help they need, leveraged help, forced treatment, if you, if you will, respecting their personal autonomy, respecting their need to, to run their lives, but also respecting the power of the disease to take over their lives and not washing our hands of people and saying it's, it's up to them if they want to live under, to, under a bridge and, and die with a serious mental illness. That's not our problem. Well, actually, it is our problem, and we need the laws and the policy changes and the research to address that problem. What role, if any, does the private sector have in this? Do, do, do uh, companies have an obligation, a duty, or to provide? I don't think so. I mean, you know, pharmaceutical companies have an obligation to do the best they can. They have an obligation to their shareholders. I know. I think as a society, we have to really uh, say this is important for us yeah. well, as a society to use federal funding. I don't think it's corporations' responsibility. I don't think you could blame anyone for this except blaming ourselves, frankly, and blaming our nation for not making this a priority. Well, I guess what I was thinking of is uh, how likely are private companies uh, um, to provide at least counseling to an employee who may, who may have... Um, some emotional or psychiatric problems that is affecting his work. I mean, a lot of people are oh, afraid to mention that. If to you're people. asking that, I think I, I think there's a 
absolutely an obligation. They, it's, the best reason to do it is because they have more productive employees. You know, you don't want to wait till uh, someone is uh, suicidal or psychotic till you offer mm-hmm. them some yeah. help. You want to intervene early. As a, as a business person, I would think that's in your best interest for your business. What about, what about schools? How early should educational institutes be looking out for, for the kind of markers that might indicate mental illness and providing counseling? Yeah. How, how early should that start? I think it should start as early as possible, and some and, and some, some fine schools are doing that, but of course not sufficient. In New York City, where I live and practice as an addiction psychiatrist, we have a very uh, good system called Thrive New York City, in which uh, Charlene McRae, who's the first lady of, of New York City, is really ha- has a multi-million dollar, multi-hundred million dollar effort to educate young people and have education be in schools so that there is a dialogue about this. So it's not such a shame or a stigma to to talk about or even have it. Um, So I do think we need to start early. And as we've talked about earlier, I think in the first segment, early intervention is key because the earlier you intervene in any illness, the better the outcome. That early intervention, I want to probably end on this point here now, is probably uh, uh, best achieved at a kind of ground level. By that, I mean, look, we're not going to see a whole bunch of psych hospitals built over the next 20 years, but we we could see smaller, more community-based facilities to get to people early on. Is that something that sort of a decentralization have to occur as well? Well, I think what many cities are trying to do, Los Angeles is a very good example, are trying to develop community-based treatments where there's a continuum between the institution and the community and where there's people in the community who could could treat you. I would beg to differ with with the idea that we shouldn't build more psychiatric beds, hospitals rather. We have 2 to 3% of the beds we need. We need... No, I I didn't suggest we don't need them. I just suggested that given the way things are, they don't... I don't see a line of people... um, well, there this. will be a line. You know, there wasn't. It wasn't long ago that HIV wasn't taken seriously. It wasn't long ago that cancer was something that people never spoke about. And now, thank God, if you have HIV, it's still a hard disease, but it's a manageable mm-hmm. disease. If you have cancer, you have treatments that are two or three years old. If you have a psychiatric problem, especially a psychotic psychi- psychiatric problem, you're going to experience medicines that are fifty or seventy years old in the basic compounds. That doesn't happen in cancer. That doesn't have an HIV. And the reason it doesn't happen, well, partly is because they're simpler diseases, frankly. But another reason is because people stood up and said, enough is enough. We've got to change it. The book is entitled Bedlam, An Intimate Journey into America's Mental Health Crisis. Its author has been our guest, Kenneth Paul Rosenberg. Thanks so much for your time, and we'll look forward to the Independent Lens uh, documentary on Bedlam in April of uh, 2020. Thanks for uh, your time pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. It's brought to you by Retreat Behavioral Health. So if you or a loved one is in need of help, you can just get the answers you need available 24-7 at 855-859-8810. That's 855-859-8810. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.